My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Copper Hills, and I'm glad to welcome you this morning. Welcome to you at home. Uh, we would love to have you come back and be part of our uh, gathering on the weekend. Just don't come at 10 o'clock, okay? If you'll come at 8.30 or 11.30, we'll have a seat for you. But uh, honestly, we miss our church family at home. We know that some of you uh, are not able, and uh, that's cool. But there's nothing like experiencing this walk together uh, in the presence of each other. So hopefully that uh, you're able to make it back before long. So this weekend, we have a group of people from our church family that are up in Winslow, Arizona, helping with the Navajo Nation do some construction and some building there. And uh, the reason I tell you that is I would invite you to pray for them this weekend. Think of them as uh, they're there. They do it to help out for sure. But uh, there's so much that Jesus does in our own lives when we serve selflessly. And uh, so remember them as, uh, as you think of them this weekend. So uh, three weeks ago, we started a series on a story that Jesus tells. It has to do with a heart. This one has some thorns around it, but let me give you a little bit of context here. This is uh, a parable, and if you're not familiar with parables, uh, these are simple stories that Jesus told from ordinary life experiences that he ties a deep spiritual meaning to. And uh, he tells a number of them throughout the text of Scripture that we read from those people that were eyewitnesses to his life. Now, here's the interesting thing about the parable we're looking at here, is uh, some would argue that it is the only parable, though there's some debate over it, depending on how you define parables, the only parable that appears in all three of the eyewitness accounts, three of the four. John doesn't include it. But all of them the three accounts where it's recorded, do place it as the very first parable that Jesus tells. Now, it could be that, in fact, it was, but the fact that it is recorded brings significance to it. And uh, it was, must have been significant to the first century church, and uh, so it's significant to us. The problem with it is it's a story about a farmer, and uh, we don't do like a lot of farming like was like the agrarian culture of the first century, but we can still learn from it, I think. So uh, let's start it. This is the way the story starts that Jesus tells. It says that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Okay, I highlighted that because we have to get the context right. What does it mean the same day? What was going on that day? Well, actually, there were a number of days, weeks and months maybe, leading up to this that were really difficult times for Jesus. If you can put yourself in his spot, imagine this, you've come into the world as the God of the whole universe that's been incarnated in a human being with a message of hope, a message of life, a message of transformation for people, and people don't understand it. They reject you. They push back on you. In fact, we're told in the weeks leading up to this that some of the cities where Jesus did some of his most amazing miracles flat out rejected him. In fact, the leaders, the religious leaders of the day said, you know where you're getting your power from? You're getting it from Beelzebub, from Satan. That's a bad day when that happens. That's not good, right? Then there's other occasions where you see, for example, the guy that baptizes him, John, writes him a note at some point and goes, I'm watching what you're doing. And I don't quite get it. It's not what I expected. Are you the real deal? You don't want to get that letter. You don't. It, 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 it's tough to, to hear that. But I think maybe the toughest thing was what happened that day. You see, we're told from Mark's account that earlier in the day, Jesus' mother and his siblings, his brothers, came to him and said, 
Jesus, we've watched what you're doing and what you're teaching, and we're concerned that you might be having a mental health crisis. And so we want you to come with us. We're going to get you help. We're going to look after you. His own family misunderstands him. That's tough, right? So it's no wonder you get a sense from that that he went out of the house and sat by the lake. It's like he wants to go be by himself. I want to process this, and I want to deal with it in a, in a healthy way. And so he goes and sits by the lake, but as happens with Jesus so often, people come to where he is. And on that occasion, they do as well. They come to the water's edge, probably the Sea of Galilee. He gets in a boat, rows out a little bit, and he starts teaching them. And this is what he starts. He starts this. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along a path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell, along th fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And then there's another part of it. We're going to hold you in suspense. We'll cover that next week. It's kind of the crowning part of the story. But we're going to stop there today and go, that's the story. Now, if you're sitting on the shore and you're in an agrarian culture, you kind of get it a little bit, but not really. Like, you're just telling us stuff we see all the time, every day. So apparently, Jesus has the story of some farmer that goes out and spreads seed in the fall of each year, which is when they did it. They still do that today. But he's spreading it manually, and it lands on a variety of different types of soil. The end. Well, no wonder that's hard to understand. Like, what are you getting at? What do you mean with that? And so Jesus' friends come to him probably later in the day and go, Jesus, that made no sense to us. None whatsoever. It's like telling a story. Three guys go into a bar, right? One orders a Coke, one orders a Sprite, one orders water. Yeah, that's the whole thing. <laughs> you would go, that is the lousiest joke ever, right? So they pull Jesus aside, and Jesus helps them explain what it is that he's after. This is what he says. So listen, then, what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom, got to underline that, we'll come back to that, that's really important, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Okay, it's starting to make some sense now. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes along because of the word, they quickly fall away. Got that. Now here's the third one. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Okay, as I said, there's more. We'll cover it next week. So evidently, it appears that what Jesus is trying to do is use this metaphor of a farmer to describe someone who has a message of hope or an important idea or something that the general population should know about. And evidently, as he travels around and teaches this new idea or this message, not everybody gets it. There are some people who look at it and go, eh, not really, not that interested, kind of half-heartedly follow it. He's, he's compelling, he's an interesting teacher, but I don't know if I'm really in on that. And then there's others that apparently hear it, accept it, but then they're kind of disappointed with the results. 
in their life. It doesn't turn out exactly the way they, and they get disappointed and they go, ah, that just, they harden their heart to it is what it is. And then this third one apparently is uh, this teaching that goes out and people receive it, but there's other teachings or other ideas that are competitive to it. And they kind of weigh these out and they discover that these other ideas, ah, they're more believable, they're more interesting, it's really more what I wanted to hear, it's more applicable to my life, and it, it chokes the life out of this important message. Okay? That's the general idea. But what's the message? Who's the messenger? What is Jesus really driving at? Well, Jesus is the messenger. He's the one that's presenting the information, the idea to people. But what, what's the idea, right? That's where he says at the beginning, it's about the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so when he writes that, when, it, when it's spoken out, the kingdom of heaven, what goes through your mind? What do you think that is? Most people that I speak to think about that is where they plan on going when they die. They plan on going to heaven that that's where they're going to reside, and it's going to be a wonderful place filled with glory and God's presence and peace and joy and harmony. And some even think they're going to play the harp on a cotton ball or something, right? Weird ideas. Not happening, by the way, unless you really love the harp, okay? But it's a great place. Why would you want to go there if it wasn't a great place, right? We think of it going there. Then Jesus comes along, and he'll say this kind of thing. When his disciples come to him one day and they go, Jesus, we watch how you pray. It's not like how we pray. There's something rich and different and amazing when you pray. Would you teach us to do that? And he goes, yeah, sure. He says, this is, kind of try this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know this one, right? What's next? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done here as it is there. Why does he not write, if that's where we're going, if that's what he's referring to, may we go to your kingdom? Because he intends to bring the kingdom here. Because he intends to create on planet Earth a place where followers of his can already live in the reality of God's presence, where they can live in intimacy with him, where they're experiencing joy and peace and delight and a flourishing life right today. One of my favorite authors says it this way, hey, if you want to go to heaven, go today. And he's not taking, talking about taking your life. He's talking about enjoy the presence of Jesus like you anticipate it will be there. Anticipate it here. Now, yes, there is still a broken world, a sin-stained world that we won't experience there. But don't wait for heaven. And this is what Jesus says. Now, does it make sense that might be misunderstood? Yeah. Does it make sense that some people would push back on it? You bet. Does it make sense some people would harden their hearts to this? You bet. Happens today too, doesn't it? It is. It's the reality in our world. No wonder this is so relevant to us today as well, not just 2,000 years ago. And then get this. Jesus hadn't said this just yet, but in the months ahead, he would tell them this. Not only do I usher in the kingdom of God, but my presence here, I'm God, I'm Messiah here on earth, but I'm now going to pay the price for you to experience the kingdom now. And that was confusing even when he went to a cross 
and gave up his life as an atoning sacrifice so you and I would have access to this kingdom today, it was still misunderstood as it is today. So, what are these seeds that are sown sown among thorns? Well, we need a bit of a farming lesson. Are you into a farming lesson? Yep, we're into a farming lesson. All right, so... uh, I want to introduce you to a uh, thorn, a, uh, a, a type of thorn that's indigenous to Israel. And uh, it goes by the binomial Latin name Scolemus Massilatus. You'll want to remember that, right? Here's a picture of it right here. Uh, when the rosette, first of all, comes out, you, farmers, here's what they would do. They would till the soil, and by all appearances, it's pure virgin tilled up soil ready for plants, Right? What they don't know is under the surface lurks an enemy of the crop that they want to produce. That's the enemy right there. What it does is when seeds are planted in fall, that's the rainy season, the seeds start to germinate, but so do the seeds from that guy start to germinate. Only this guy's got a louder voice than the other seeds, and he grows more quickly. Creates about a 10 or 12-inch rosette like this, And what happens is the other good seeds that are germinating pop up, but they come up underneath the shade of those broad leaves and they can't get the sunlight and they can't get the water that they need to thrive. Worse than that, that guy right there sucks up all the nutrients that the good seeds need. And they just never flourish. They'll come up, some will die instantly, but they just never flourish that plant will ultimately grow up to like six feet tall with thorns on it. And, uh, but it's got a beauty to it as well, deceptively beautiful. It's got these wonderful yellow flowers at the end of this thorn, thorny branch. And then left, if you don't pull them out, this is what it looks like at the end of the season. It's just a thorn. It's a problem. It really is a problem for the farmers of the day. And so Jesus is saying, farmers, when you go out and you throw your seed, you know that there are weeds there as well. There are these thistles, and they're going to come up, and you're smart if you pull them out early, if you get to them quickly, because then your harvest can grow. But it doesn't always happen. So what's he talking about now as it relates to his the mission, the, the voice of Jesus, the word of Jesus coming to them as access to the kingdom of God is available for you now? This is what he's saying. Apparently, he says there are two competitive ideas to the reality of the kingdom of God growing in your life. The good seed is going to get choked out, potentially, by these two competitive seeds that become thorns. Well, uh, this particular series of thistles, of character, or whatever they end up being, also have a uh, have a a binomial Latin name, and it is, I want to be in controlitus. I, I want to be in controlitus. That's what the binomial Latin name is. You might actually recognize it. I, you're, I'm very impressed with your Latin, by the way. Uh, but, but they have two different species of I want to be in controlitus. One of them is, Jesus would say, the worries of the day. And the second would be, the deceptiveness or the deceitfulness of wealth. The worries of the day kind of makes sense, right? This is, this is good logic. 
You say yes to Jesus. You experience the wonder of early growth, and life looks good. You have a new peace, a new heart, a new direction. You feel intimacy with him. You're experiencing the early seasons of a transformed life. His spirit has come to live in you, and you do have spiritual life for the first time. And then just the cares of life sweep in. And you suddenly go, you know something? That was those early days where I didn't feel I needed to be in control because God, you're, just your overwhelming presence just took me and carried me and I was relaxed and at peace with you. Now, now I gotta take care of some of those concerns. Now I, I need to fix them. I need to make sure that I get them right. I need to be in control of that. I want a certain outcome and I don't know you're gonna give me that outcome so I'm gonna take care of it. And that is a thistle that will choke out the life of God's spirit in us. It's extremely dangerous. And it's really best to recognize that early so it doesn't take over. Some years ago, um, a young man by the name of Michael stopped by our church for a weekend, one of our weekend gatherings. Uh, Nobody knew him. I didn't know him, but I I met him that day. And uh, I could see that he was uh, just a bit of a troubled guy. And so I invited him for a coffee the next week, coffee or lunch, I don't remember. And we sat down, and he told me that uh, he was, in fact, desperate. Uh, he was just, he had just kind of kind of cleaned his life up from a, an addiction. And uh, his wife had told him either, you know, clean up or, you know, get out, one of the two. And uh, he uh, was raised in a, in a religious enough family that he knew somehow God needed to be part of this fix in his world and his life. And uh, so we met for lunch and I, uh, coffee or lunch, and I described to him what life with Jesus could be like, what Jesus had done for him personally, and that Jesus could heal and restore and put him back together again and give him new life. And he said yes to that. And over the next months, it was just amazing to watch him grow in his knowledge and in his interest. There was a a sense of peace and joy and delight in his life that was just marvelous to watch what Jesus was doing for him. And then about six months into this new life of his, uh, he couldn't get a job because his resume didn't look all that good with some of the stuff that he had experienced and done as a result of his addiction. He discovered his wife wasn't near as forgiving as what he thought she would be. Uh, He had some chronic pain because of the addictions and what that had led him into and then some old friends showed up on the scene and you can guess how the story goes it choked the life from him because the addiction was harder to handle his wife's unforgiveness was more difficult the cares of life not being able to find resources to support his family those are all hard but they began to choke out the very life stream of what Jesus had initiated and started in him because the cares of life just invaded and took over the joy in life. See, the cares of life have that effect. If you walk with Jesus and you have a, you have a life with him, look for that kind of person and take notice of them and take interest in them. Those of us who walk with Jesus and have that vibrancy, they're around us, and it's our responsibility to be looking for them, to ask Jesus to show us and reveal, because that thistle of cares of life can choke the life out of them. And Jesus evidently is concerned about that. 
The second thing is the deceitfulness of wealth. What is that? Well, we have to be really clear that to go back to the original Greek and realize it doesn't say that Jesus is concerned about the wealth or the possessions that people have. That's not what this, in this place it says. He's concerned about the deceitfulness of acquisition of stuff. If you go to the Greek, the word for deceitfulness is apate. You don't have to remember that. Unless the next time you go to Chili's and you order an appetizer, and like Elfie and I did on Friday, have way too many of the chips and salsa, took away our desire for the main course. This is appetite. This is something that's good, but if you consume too much of it, it actually invades the main course and you get cheated out of the best part. So Jesus is concerned that sometimes the acquisition of stuff can be one of those thistles that chokes the life out of us. And it isn't just when you have a lot of, uh, you've, you've acquired a lot of things or you have a lot of wealth. You can have a little bit of wealth. Why? Because it's about wanting to be in control. If I don't have much, I think I have to take it upon myself to make what I need. I've got it. I'll take care of it. I'm in control of that, and I'll do that, and then we, we don't let God provide in wonderful ways. Or some of us have this. We have so much stuff, we're having a hard time keeping control of all the stuff because somebody else wants it, or we're going to lose it, or we need to keep investing, or will that really be enough to take me through the finish line? It's that deceitfulness of that thought, I need to be in control. 30 years ago or so, uh, Elfie and I uh, changed our role in life. I left my business career uh, to become a pastor at our home church. And it was such an honor, such a delight to say yes to that and to feel like that inner sense of this is what God would want us to do. And then we realized this. Pastors do not get bonuses. <laughs> Did you know that? They don't get a company car or a company house. They don't get the over-the-top 401K. Like, they, they don't. And they don't get paid, like, maybe market value that they could get. Like, that's no complaint. Not, we are wonderfully taken care of. That's not the point. The point is it became a problem for us. What kind of a problem? Well, when we saw our friends being able to purchase a home and we were renting, it became a problem. When we saw them buy a second car and we're juggling three kids with an ancient family van, it became a problem. You see, the acquisition was starting to kind of pull the joy and suck the vibrancy of our walk with Jesus, which we were so thrilled to be part of, and, and, but then shouldn't we better be better provided for? Shouldn't we? Like, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? And it became a problem for us. Then uh, one of our wedding anniversaries, we decided to uh, take a weekend away, and uh, while we're away, this problem surfaced because we didn't have actually money to go do this, and so you sit down for a meal and you order Let's just order appetizers. We can't afford the main course. And here we are to celebrate our anniversary. You see, like, the tension, right? And so uh, 
I think it was the Saturday night of the weekend, we went back to our room and fire's burning and we're talking about this and there's tension between us again. And then we had this idea and I think it was from Jesus. We had this idea. Why don't we take and list all the assets that we have, everything that we own, and put a dollar value to it and get a total. And then take all of our indebtedness and put a dollar value to it and a total. Turns out we were on the on the upside of that one. And we had more assets than debt. That's a good thing. And then this is the thing that changed. Changed our weekend. It changed our lives as it related to the acquisition of stuff. The thought came to our minds, now take out a blank check, write God's name on it, and whatever that total is that you're in the black ink on, put it in there and give it to God. Now, symbolically, throw it in the fireplace, throw it in the fire, and give it to him. We still can look back to that moment where this acquisition of stuff thing changed for us, and we pulled a weed out of our lives where it didn't control us in that way anymore. We didn't have to be. Now, that didn't mean we suddenly got money flowing into our family. That didn't happen. But it was no longer a problem because we had thrown our control into the fire and now we were going to rest in him. And it had a spiritual awakening in us, does till today. But what Jesus is so concerned about is this thistle of, I need to be in control of this. So how does Jesus handle that? Well, one of the wonderful things about Jesus is he re- reminds us over and again, would you come to me? Would you let me be part of that? Would you rest with me? Would you wait with me? Would you maybe stop trying so hard? And then don't just stop trying and not caring, but stop trying to control and come and wait with me. Be with me. Let me speak into your life. Let me do a little weeding for you. Pull some of those thistles out so that the vibrancy of who I am can just totally be expressed and revealed in your life. No wonder he writes things like this as he does in Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and I will give rest for your soul. It's a waiting kind of thing. When I was a little pipsqueak, my mom taught me this from Isaiah 40. This is what he writes in a really chaotic time. He says, Isaiah writing to the people, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope, another translation is wait for the Lord, will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint, but you gotta wait. You know what that waiting is? In this, the picture is not just standing there tapping your foot going, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. You know what it is? It's more like a waiter at a table with a white cloth over his arm standing at your table and going, I'm ready whenever you are. Whatever I can do for you. Whatever you need. That's the posture of waiting for God. Sitting at his table. Waiting for him to do, to say, to speak, to help, to encourage. But if you don't wait, if you don't have those moments, you can blow right by and get all weed-infested. You know, Jesus did this. You know, he taught us to wait. Here he is, the, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And what do you see him doing? Being off by himself at night with his father. 
You see him praying in ways that caught people's attention, like we said earlier. You see him reciting passages of scripture that no doubt he had memorized. You see him being alone, away from the crowds. What's he doing? Tal over his arm, Father, I'm waiting for you. I wonder if on this occasion where he sat, wanted to go to the beach and people ended up crowding him out, whether he wasn't just looking for some waiting time with his father. We sang a song. Butch, why don't you come up with a team? We sang a song that Butch introduced. And I, I know, based on what Butch and Heidi are facing these days, that waiting is a part of their journey and their experience. He introduced it to us from Psalm 130. And uh, it talks about waiting. And I want to I try something together today. I want to carve out some space for us to wait with God for just a few minutes. So uh, I'm going to invite you to stand, if you would. And uh, you can go ahead and stand. And as this song plays, and the words uh, of I will, I will wait, I'll surely wait. If standing isn't a waiting posture for you, if it doesn't help you kind of wait, why don't you go ahead and have a seat? Maybe that's a waiting posture. Or if you want to, you could come kneel at the front or kneel at your seat. And if you're at home, if you're watching this from home, why don't you get off your couch and um, just wait. Trust him that he's good enough, that where those weeds are in our lives, the cares of life and the deceitfulness of acquiring stuff, that he'll pull those out. He'll do it. He'll pull them out, but he'll do it gently as we wait. And he'll renew our walk with him. He'll renew us in wonderful ways. So as we sing, wait and put your body in whatever posture would help you wait in these moments. <laughs>